Today's <coughs> preacher is Paul. And Paul's got something to tell us about the desires that drive us, something to pay attention to. See, Paul knows a thing or two about the human heart, certain heart diseases that can ruin us, viruses like the love of money. That's why Paul writes. Paul wants to convince us, as he always does, that the pursuit of Christ is incomparably greater gain than the pursuit of money. Why? Because the love of money, the unbridled desire for material riches, wreaks havoc in our lives and in the world. It's a fraud, it's an infection, it gets into our minds and it promises a lot but delivers a little. Because even when you pursue and possess worldly riches, they all too often seem to look better on somebody else. Now Paul can be intense at times. I know this. He doesn't beat around the bush. He sounds more like a New Yorker than a Vancouverite. But here's what you need to remember. Paul wants what is best for you and me, just like God. And Paul speaks for God. So if what Paul says causes an affront or seems a bit abrasive this morning, just remember that Paul's a true friend, and the wounds of a friend can be trusted. Now, bearing all this in mind, we're going to work our way through verses 11 through 16. You can open your Bibles and follow along. I'd encourage that. This is the center section of the passage we've been looking at for the past two weeks. And today will be the last sermon in the series on that passage. And as we work through these center verses, verses 11 through 16, we need to consider three things that Paul's words put before us. We need to consider the right pursuit. We need to consider the resulting possibilities. And we need to consider the source of true wealth. The right pursuit, the resulting possibilities, the source of true wealth. Now, as we unpack all this, we're going to have to do a bit of work. We're going to have to do some digging. But stay with me, because the digging is going to lead to some marvelous treasure, a great discovery. So I want you to get ready for a spiritual jolt today. I want your world to be rocked. That's what this passage has done for me as I've been preparing I want you to leave here today, not just with something to think about, not just with something to digest throughout the coming week, but also with your hearts and your attitudes decisively changed. Decisively changed. Come Holy Spirit. The right pursuit. Let's look back at verses 4 through 10 as we we start here. Paul's been playing the critic, pretty sharp critic, kind of like Simon Cowell type of critic. Paul sees through things, and he knows the danger of the love of money and its allure. Paul knows that money can have its sort of own psychic energy. We say that money will work for us, but all too often it ends up becoming our master. As Alistair vividly reminded last week, the love of money is rampant and toxic. It warps and darkens our character. Lots of studies show that. It fosters a false and arrogant sense of entitlement. The love of money can so easily make us into types of people that the world needs less of, not more. So that's why Paul issues this grave 
and somber precaution. That's why he implores Timothy to flee, to mortify, to put to death the love of money, to perish the thought that material gain is the key to true contentment. God's telling us the same thing today. God knows all too well that the love of money has a nasty group of companions. Envy, dissatisfaction, miserliness, ingratitude, slander and dissension, relational friction, a depraved way of life, a regular motley crew. And all this filth multiplies rapidly. It can be as destructive as the streptococcus virus that's on meat that's left in the danger zone between 4 and 60 degrees Celsius for more than four hours. <laughs> Cindy, Mike, and I did food safe last week. It's prepared us for Lenten fasting. <laughs> God does not want your life entangled in such a state of misery and malcontent. He doesn't want you to be deceived by the seductions of money. He doesn't want your joy and contentment robbed because you were made for more. You were made for more. That's why Jesus talks about money oh so much. Remember his words? Do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy, but store for yourself treasure in heaven. For you can only serve one master, either God or money. That's what Jesus says. See, Jesus knows something that we need to know about ourselves. He knows that you can love money. You can be greedy and be totally unawares, totally self-deceived. It happens all the time. You think of yourself as responsible, prudent, thrifty, not greedy. If you have an affair, you commit adultery, and you're in the bed with someone who's not your spouse, you know it. You know that you're committing adultery. But you can love money and be blind to it. How many of us ever confess that we're greedy? Not many. I've never heard it at an inwards night at St. Peter's. Pastor, I'm beset with avarice. Not that you would put it that way anyway. But it's there, keeping a low profile and having its way with your character and mine. And so Paul says to flee. Run for your life. Run from the love of money. But he doesn't just say to run away from something. He also says to run towards something else, to pursue the right things. So let's look at that, the second point, verses 11 and 12. Paul's better alternative, something worth running towards. Now I want you to know that what Paul is saying here is very much indebted to the teaching of Jesus. The, the unholy, defiling things in this world are not outside of us. They're in us. It is what comes out of a person that defiles them. That's what Jesus said. And that means that the love of money is not an environmental issue. It's not rooted in what's happening outside of us and around us. It's an internal issue, and so internal change is necessary to deal with it. And so Paul says that the person of God should crave and hunger not after money, but after righteousness after godliness and faith and love and steadfastness and gentleness. Paul wants us to persevere in these things, these more excellent things, to honor them, to dream about them, to devote our thought and our energy and our time and our imaginations and our relationships 
to their pursuit? Are we doing that? Now, for the Christian, all this makes perfect sense. It's the natural thing to do, even if it's difficult sometimes. It's natural to pursue these great things because they line up with our conversion and our baptism. They make sense for people who have come into God's family. If you register and insure a car, you drive it. If you come into God's family, you pursue these things. That's how it works. And for the Christian, pursuing these right things in verse 11 and 12 increases our authenticity. See, we don't want to just be people who wear intellectual glasses. We want to be people who are actually intellectual, right? We want to be authentic. Everybody wants that. Nobody wants to be an imposter. We want the kingdom of Christ instilled into us and to emanate out of our lives like sap from a maple tree. That's for all you Canadians. Let's briefly unpack these qualities that God says to pursue and show us what it means to live for God. These are traits that pave the road of true wealth and lead to lasting contentment. So the person of God is to exhibit profound love, love that is willing to suffer, love that isn't crippled with self-interest, the type of love that Christ displays. And the person of God is to pursue faith, to live with utter trust in God, leaning on God's view of things before her own. The person of God seeks to be righteous, to desire and seek to follow God's guidelines about how we should use our bodies, our power, and our money. The person of God yearns to be gentle. Amen. The special term appears only here in the New Testament, and it seems to refer to gentleness under suffering. The person of God refuses to panic when life seems to be in turmoil, remains gentle and compassionate towards those around him. Now look at the words, the verbs that Paul uses in verse 12. Fight. Take hold. What's this all about? Let me tell you. The pursuit that Paul exhorts us to here will not always be easy. At times, it will feel painstaking. I know it from personal experience, as I'm sure many of you do. That's going to be true for all of us. No one, not Timothy, not Paul, not me or you, will be exempt from the difficulties we experience in pursuing the things of God. Faith and the life of faith is not a genetic predisposition that some people win in the DNA lottery. I'm sorry. Consider Christ himself. He was truly human in part, and even he wasn't exempt. In verse 13, Paul alludes to Jesus' trial before Pontius Pilate, that moment when Christ refused to say what he could have said to be exonerated, to bypass the cross, that moment when he may have wanted to flee the call of God, not to pursue the things of God. But he kept faith, even when it was probably excruciating not just to show us that it's possible to keep faith, but also to display for us the struggle that we will experience in pursuing the right things and living the life of faith. Friends, in pursuing the right things, the traits of verse 11 and 12, struggle and inner resistance is from one angle to be expected. It's normal from one angle. It is to be expected. It takes more work to flick on a light switch 
than to leave the darkness interrupted. Let that sink in. When my granddad wanted to say something important, he would say, now hear me. Now hear me. What is not normal is to feel or think that you have to have perfect, uninterruptible faith and love and gentleness and righteousness all the time. From your conversion onwards, without effort, with ease, with no disruption. Folks, the waters of baptism don't turn you into an angel. And as Martin Luther said, no great saint lives without errors. If that were the case, if you didn't need to pursue these things, it would mean that you basically had it all together, that you didn't need to pursue things because you've already got them. And if you've already got them, you wouldn't need Jesus, and you do. Let that sink in. Let that adjust your expectations for spiritual growth, especially for any perfectionist out there. On to the second point, the resulting possibilities. Here I want to take up an if-then question. If you flee and pursue according to St. Paul, if you focus your energy and stamina on being steadfast in Christ, if you fight the good fight, if you keep your heart open to the Holy Spirit, if you settle down and get comfortable in the kingdom of God, then what results? What happens as a result? If this, then what? The possibilities are infinite. The New Testament lays out lots of them, and they're always concrete, and they're tangible, and in that way they give us some affirmation that God really is transforming us. Now, in this context, in Paul's discussion about money and our relationship to money, what happens in our lives, what might happen if we pursue the right things, love, righteousness, gentleness, steadfastness, one of the best things about being a Christian is the church. I know some of you are probably rolling your eyes when I say that. We have the church. We've got a long line of Christians before us, a series of faithful lives that depict for us what happens when the love of money is replaced by the wealth of Christ. So let's look at a few of those this morning. If you pursue according to Paul's words in verses 11 and 12, maybe what happened to Charles Studd will happen to you. You probably don't know who he is, but now you will. He was part of a crazy group of Christians known as the Cambridge Seven. They lived in England in the mid to late 1800s. Their lives all intersected at the university. As a young man, Charles was one of England's greatest cricket players, national hero, the envy of every schoolboy. He was also someone who had every opportunity afforded him. He studied at Eton, the poshest school in all the world. He went on to Cambridge. He came from a fabulously wealthy family. He had the good life. His character, needless to say, was a bit more like Herod the Great than Jesus Christ because Charles was concerned with amassing, amassing fame and wealth and worldly glory. But in 1883, his younger brother George got gravely ill, and Charles went to care for him. And while he was caring for George, he had an epiphany from God. This is what he wrote. What is all the popularity of the world to George now? 
What is all the fame and flattering? What is it worth to possess the riches of the world when a man comes face to face with eternity? It was in those moments that George found his consolation in God, and Charles began to do that too. Shortly after, he went to hear a great evangelist called Dwight Moody preach, and something happened in Charles's heart. This is what he wrote. In that moment, the Lord met me and restored to me the joy of his salvation. Cricket began to fade in importance. All those desires for fame and wealth began to fade in importance. Charles began to flee and pursue according to what St. Paul says. What resulted? What happened? Let me tell you, it's absolutely amazing. Charles received an inheritance of over $2 million. And he decided to unload it. He decided that instead of being a silo, he would be a conduit. The money began to flow through him joyfully. He divided the bulk of it among four outstanding charities in England and India, including George Mueller's orphanages. And after he had given most of it away, there was about 300,000 left. He gave that to his fiancee as a wedding present. And guess what? She gave that all away too. After emptying the bank accounts, Mr. and Ms. Studd left to be overseas missionaries in the very demanding environment of inland China, working with Hudson Taylor's group. Externally, life was quite hard, especially compared to their upbringing. But they wouldn't have it any other way. This is what Charles said. Some wish to live within the sound of church or chapel bell, but I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. Life was hard, but it was joyful, it was content, it was satisfying, it was without regret. How do we know? Did it last? How do we know? Yes, it did. We know because Charles wrote a letter shortly before he died, and this is what that letter said. As I believe that I am now nearing my departure from this world, I have a few things to rejoice in. They are these, that I joyfully acted as God told that rich young man to act that God called me to China and I went even though my family insisted that I not go. And that when God has given me work to do, I have never refused it and I have always found joy therein. For Charles, all things were counted rubbish that he might gain Christ. Is that how we think? But godliness with contentment is great gain for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of it. Or if you pursue the right things according to Paul, maybe your life will parallel Osceola McCarty. You've probably never heard of her either. You're going to want to. She died in 1999. Osceola was born in 1908, and it was a raw start. She was conceived when her mother was raped on a wooded path in rural Mississippi, coming home from taking care of a sick relative. Osceola was raised by her grandmother and aunt, as a child, she would go to school and come home and help them with their washerwoman business, doing laundry and dry cleaning. When her aunt got sick, she dropped out of school to take care of her and to pick up her extra work as the washerwoman, and she never went back to school. She did all that laundry by hand on a rub board. In the 1960s, she got a washer and dryer, but she didn't think they did a good enough job, so she went back to the rub board. Osceola started every day of her life by praying the Lord's Prayer on her knees. 
and then she went to washing. Now, unlike most children, especially most people in our culture these days, she started saving money at a very early age, at about eight. And she did that into her retirement. And when she retired at age 86, swollen hands that were crippled from arthritis, she had $280,000 in the bank. But it wasn't for herself. It, was, it wasn't earmarked to buy the life that she'd always wanted. She wasn't accumulating wealth for her own benefit. She didn't live and work for money. She really didn't even want anything for herself. It was only at the insistence of her friends that she bought a TV and two window AC units. Lord have mercy. That's in Mississippi. It's hot. Most of the money, 80%, was to be given away, not as a bequest at her death, but immediately, some to her church, some to her friends, and 60% to the University of Southern Mississippi to set up a scholarship for students of color of deprivation who were worthy. That university did not admit students of color 30 years before. How on earth do we make sense of this astonishing woman's life? The good thing is, is that we don't have to conjecture. She was glad to share her secret. Let me tell you what she said when she was interviewed. You have to accept God the best way you know how, and he'll show himself to you. And the more you serve him, the more able you are to serve him. Some people make a lot of noise about what's wrong in the world, and they're usually blaming somebody else. I think people who don't like the way things are need to look at themselves first. They need to get right with God and change their ways. If everybody did that, we'd be all right. Osceola was right with God. She pursued the right things. She grabbed hold of the right things. She made the good confession. She was a person whose life was filled with love and righteousness and gentleness and faith. And so she had the wealth that doesn't need insurance, that doesn't need to be hedged, that doesn't expire, a form of wealth that laughs at the notion that money can buy anything comparable. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we'll take nothing out of it. Now before moving on, I need to address a few points of potential confusion about these stories I've just told you, because I don't want to be misunderstood. First of all, freedom from the love of money does not require you to live in poverty. Okay, you got that? It doesn't require you to give all of your resources away. Poverty is not the only external sign that you don't love money. There are some Christians out there, and even in this city, I have some of them who are friends, who suggest as much. They appeal to people like St. Francis. He's the patron saint there. Or they universalize Jesus' teaching to the rich young ruler. It's for every one of us. Sometimes those people can be quite harsh towards Christians who don't live, at least materially, in a state of poverty. Here's the problem. They do that to the exclusion of what God's word says elsewhere. They do that to the violation of the one prayer in the book of Proverbs, which was just read for you, that prays against being too rich or too poor, because both states can lead you away from God. And they also, and more importantly, do that in violation of the Great Commission mandate to take the gospel to all 
types of people. The gospel is especially for the poor, but not only for the poor. If we all lived on the downtown east side in poverty, then we wouldn't reach everybody else in this city. And God loves all the people in Vancouver. He loves the business people. He loves the lawyers. Yes, even the lawyers. He loves the people who inhabit the West End and Kitts and Point Grey and Fairview and Commercial Drive. God loves hipsters too, right? God wants us in all of these places. And if we all reduced ourselves to poverty for the sake of Christ, we couldn't be there. Now, friends, we're all going to end up in the kingdom of God together one day, and it's going to be tricky and messy having rich, middle class, and poor people all in the same place. We better start practicing now. Second, the two examples that I gave, I deliberately picked someone who was very rich and someone who was very poor, relatively speaking. Why? Charles Studd, Osceola. Because the love of money is not just a rich person's problem. Right? The summons to be conduits of grace and generosity is not just for mega philanthropists. Don't you dare think that. Remember the original recipient of Paul's letter, Timothy. Timothy is told to flee the love of money. Do you think Timothy was rich? He wasn't. The generosity that pours grace into the world is all of our business. British writer George Eliot hits this nail on the head beautifully in her novel Middlemarch. Let me read this section. For the growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts, and, th and that things that are not so ill with you and me as they might have been is half owing to the number who lived faithfully a hidden life and who rest in unvisited tombs. People like us. Anyone who really gains Christ will have a secret and sometimes visible, but always radical generosity in their life. The allure of money can be a snare for all of us. And in like manner, God wants us all to possess true wealth. So how do we get true wealth? This wealth that Paul had, this wealth that Charles Studd had, this wealth that Osceola had, the wealth that makes us desire to pursue the right things, that inclines us to unload and share instead of grasp and accumulate. The source of true wealth. Look at verse 15 and 16. Paul is singing, and he's not singing, make money, money, make money, money, make. There's your rap reference. <laughs> he's not singing that song. He's rejoicing in Christ. To Christ be all honor and dominion. Christ, Lord of Lord, King of kings. And we need to sing too, because when we sing, pursuing the right things is easier. We've got to see what Paul sees and embrace what he embraces. Now in verse 16, Paul says that Christ is the only source of immortality. And the quest for immortality has everything to do with the love of money. In the Roman world, in the world of Paul, in the world of Jesus, there was a lot of preoccupation with immortality. For Roman people, immortality was achieved by living a life marked with accomplishment, a life that mattered, a life that would be remembered. Love of money was an important part of that package. Money, after all, made it possible to do things that would give your life significance. 
that would make it worthwhile, that would make it worth remembering, immortal. That attitude's still pretty common in the world, I think, and in this city. But from where Paul sits, that attitude and that approach looks like a load of hogwash, as we would say in South Carolina. Why? Because it pales in comparison with what Christ offers. If what the Bible says is true, then Jesus doesn't just offer the possibility of a life that's worth remembering. No. He brings much more than that. A life that does not ultimately enter into being remembered because it is a life that never ends. Christ is the one who takes withering and fading bodies and souls and makes them radiant and eternal. Takes things that are finite and makes them infinite. That's what the resurrection means. That's what God is communicating to us through it, that what he did with one man in the middle of time, he will do with all of us at the end of time, resurrection. And at that moment, all of our deepest desires for significance, to be loved, will be utterly satisfied. That's our destiny in Christ. That is the epiphany behind Paul's song. Friends, sweet Jesus overshadows any and every precious stone, and he's much better looking than Franklin or Borden. And I don't know who Borden is, but he's on the Canadian $100 bill. <laughs> Put another way, Christ gives us the things that stand behind and beneath what the love of money is trying to attain. That's reality according to the Bible. That's the source of true wealth. Grab onto it. Plug into Christ because he is rich and generous. And that is the reason that the love of money makes zero sense, zero sense for a Christian. See, for Paul, the love of money, looking for immortality through the love of money is, is just looking for a good thing in the wrong place. It's like mistaking dust and ash for gold. It's equivalent to rearranging deck furniture on the Titanic or trying to nail jello to a tree. It's asinine and pointless. There's your SAT word for the day. But it's also dangerous. The love of money is also dangerous because it doesn't just dupe us and deceive us, but it leads us into a way of life that makes the world into a worse place. And I am thinking of people in my mind right now who struggle in this area, not here, but elsewhere, and I can feel my blood pressure rising. We start with good intentions with money but then things get warped. We get caught in our own suspenders. The love of money seduces us to a way of life that tends to overlook and deny the needs of other people and to overfocus on self-satisfaction and self-acclaim. It feeds us like sugar. Eat, 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 but never satiated. Consider this admonishment from an ancient Christian preacher, John Chrysostom. A dreadful thing is the love of money. It disables both the eyes and the ears. It makes people worse to deal with than a wild beast, allowing a person neither to consider conscience, nor friendship, nor fellowship, nor salvation. Don't forget that. The wealth that the world grasps leads to abundance without satisfaction and plenty without generosity. Christ invites us to imagine a different world. 
can you do this? A world that he died to create, a world that is watered for growth by his blood, a world where scarcity is replaced by plenty, where the graspy spirit becomes bountiful, a life where you find it much easier, much easier to fixate on what you have rather than on your wish list. A world made possible because the one who was rich became poor, that we who are poor might become rich. That world's based on a better wealth, a wealth that says that you matter infinitely and eternally, a wealth that doesn't require insurance, a wealth that brings contentment, a wealth that says that no one will ever be able ultimately to look at your life and say, that person's a waste. A wealth that says, whatever you lose for my sake, you will gain back 100-fold. That's a real trust fund. It's given by Christ. It's irrevocable. Friends, that's the gospel. Do you know it? Do you want to know it? The wealth of the gospel fuels benevolence and largesse. It makes us scatter money like seed. And when you have that wealth, the way that money fits into your life will be astoundingly different. The way, the way that you negotiate material life will be totally reconfigured. Your attitude will change. Let me tell you what that might look like in closing. You may not utterly empty yourself of material resources, but you won't be materialistic. Simplicity will become a more attractive way of life. You may find yourself in the middle class or the upper middle class or the upper class or the lower class, but you'll live at the bottom of your class. You may not have much, but you'll find joy in giving sacrificially. You'll get asked to share often, but you won't begrudge that request. Rather, you'll be honored to be known as a person who is generous. You may not have or possess everything that you want, but you will like the type of person that you're becoming. That's what real wealth can do. Christ is its source. Be wealthy.